You are listening to Monocle's House View first broadcast on the 3rd of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. In this age of images, uh, mostly these leaders uh, do try to cater to their audiences back home. This week NATO meets in London, COP25 in Madrid and Mercosur in Brazil. But are these intergovernmental powwows actually fit for purpose? My guests Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Vincent McAvini will discuss that and the day's other news, including what does venality in Malta tell us about corruption around the world? And should actors have anything to do with politics? Plus... As someone who's moved from country to country throughout my life, I enjoy stumbling across quirky traditions and eventually working them into my own. That's what integrating is all about, not replacing your own traditions but adding new ones to your repertoire. In praise of Christmas quirks, I am Markus Hippi. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the program. I'm joined by Oscar Guardiola Rivera, who is a professor in international law and international affairs at Birkbeck College, and the UK correspondent for Euronews, Vincent McAvinney. Welcome to the program. NATO leaders are gathered in London for a NATO summit. However, it is not the only high-profile meeting of world leaders this week. Madrid is currently hosting a UN climate summit, and Latin American leaders are also attending the Mercosur summit in Brazil. Oscar, world leaders do keep regularly in touch and we know that, for example, Donald Trump is not afraid to share his views on social media. So what do we need summits for? Well, uh, we may need summits for very different reasons than they do. Uh, as far as these leaders uh, are concerned, uh, mostly playing to their audiences back home. Uh, you know, you can bet uh, Trump will uh, like to go back to America uh, claiming uh, yet another victory in one of the fights that he usually picks. Uh, you know, you remember just last week he uh, tweeted uh, he tweeted a, a picture of himself as a fake Rocky Balboa. So uh, in a sense, uh, that's what he's doing. As for the Latin American summit, well, the context there is very different because we now we would now complete uh, probably four weeks of huge uh, protests against uh, uh, the uh, predominant uh, economic model in the streets of uh, most uh, uh, capitals in Latin America, most prominently in Bogota and in Santiago. And uh, therefore, uh, for them to go uh, uh, to Mercosur, particularly for the, the countries of the Southern Cone who are uh, members of Mercosur, well, first, we have uh, clear divisions now between the elected Argentinian government, say, and uh, the far-right-wing government of Brazil. And uh, the protests that are uh, beginning to uh, uh, take over the uh, the whole of, La- of the Americas uh, are going to play uh, their part in uh, those meetings. But as I said, in this age of images, uh, mostly these leaders uh, do try to, uh, you know, cater to their audiences uh, back home. Vincent, do you agree? I know you've been following quite a few summits during your career. How do, how often do these summits actually make a difference? And how often are they only about photo opportunities and dinner receptions? 
I mean, primarily for these leaders, it is a way of looking like they're big players on the world stage. And I've gone to things like G20s and G7s. I think ultimately the most interesting moments are the kind of off-the-cuff moments. These things are highly organized. You know, the routes that the leaders are plotted on as they walk by are carefully managed. The timings are managed so that there are these kind of moments where you can get these little brush buys between two leaders who might not do a formal sit-down meeting. And so it's interesting to see the interactions that they have between them then. But yeah, I mean, as you were saying, you know, this is very much for those at home, particularly Donald Trump definitely likes to treat, you know, G7s, G20s, NATO meetings very much as a America first. I'm out here batting for America. He did a lengthy press conference this morning. It was all to an American audience saying that he was forcing allies to pay more that America's carried them for too long. Um, you know, he's grandstanding about President Macron wanting to put in a digital services tax. So particularly the way that Trump has done it, not agreeing to sign up to things like cables after summits as well is very much for that home audience. And, and considering the huge amount of planning work and preparations for this summit, how often are there actually last minute surprises that something surprising is actually decided? I mean, I remember exactly this time last year going to the G20 in Argentina and Buenos Aires with Theresa May. And that was the first occasion where world leaders had a chance to meet MBS, the you know the leader in Saudi Arabia, after the Jamal Khashoggi murder. And, you know, in fairness to Theresa May, she raised it with him. She said that there you know needed to be transparency and full investigation. And so if something does happen in the preceding time, it is an opportunity suddenly for that issue, you know, which was bubbling along, suddenly it kind of was, you know, a real major line out of that conference was you know MBS pallying up to there was a famous picture of him going towards Vladimir Putin big handshake and hug but all of the other leaders being very wary about the direction that he was taking the kingdom. Oscar you already talked about America Syria summits and how how it actually it is pretty important but looking at the UN climate summit for example looking at NATO summits do you expect much from this week is the world going to be very different next week well not much not not really now I'm interested to see what the new government of Spain uh, does with the climate summit uh, uh, taking place in Madrid this is a very progressive government it's the first time that uh, uh, Podemos as part of a coalition will uh, uh, become a player in these uh, higher stages uh, and these high stakes games so it would be interesting interesting to see what they come up with. As for the Americas, really, I mean, this may be the story of uh, the year and and next year. The protests in Latin America show no sign of uh, uh, diminishing. And these are happening in in, uh, uh, unexpected places. And uh, the way and the the choices that Mercosur countries uh, might make from here onwards will uh, uh, depend on on those and impact on those protests. So I'm also very interested to see uh, what uh, that dynamic uh, tells us. Is there something you'd like to change? Do you think summits could be made better somehow to function better? I mean, well, one of the things to say is, you know, these summits have a huge environmental impact. The, the carbon emissions are massive. You've got leaders flying in in their, you know, state jets from all around the world. A, a colleague earlier posted a video from uh, the summit in, in Madrid, this climate summit of, you know, you always get an exhibition hall at these summits. So it's, a, you know, countries try to showcase their latest technology and produce. But the exhibition hall at this summit, you know, it didn't look like many, you know, huge sets, giant video screens, all this kind of stuff talking about what these countries are doing to combat climate change. But I don't think many of them would have been carbon carbon neutral displays and the cost of importing them to the summit like these things you know they are they get bigger and bigger and bigger every year the security can be a nightmare if you're 
trying to work at them as well. They can really disrupt. No, no, these kind of things don't tend to be done in the middle of cities anymore because huge protests, the disruption, they tend to do them slightly outside of cities. So that has been a good move in recent years, but they are hugely disruptive to the host nation. So, so one fix, just have them less regularly and try to make them more environmentally friendly. Well, or else do what uh, they do in Kingsman's films. Uh, let, uh, let them uh, virtually project themselves into yeah. a room. What do you think they also also do you think what do you think about the impacts in people's minds well when they follow all these summits all these big summits for example relating to climate change and trying to tackle these issues and we feel like we haven't seen huge results do you think they these events may also make people more pessimistic and skeptical mm. about the future and what our leaders are doing I think I, yeah and I'm going to single out one for that Davos I think yes. is a is a real disaster for politicians and companies and elites I think the more that summit builds and builds it just looks like an absolute jolly i mean you know in this swiss mountain resort look i can't remember earlier this year i think it was 170 private jets flew in you know trying to them to lecture working people around the world about the need you know to to combat climate change i think that summit just looks outrageous especially with kind of increasing celebrity kind of appearances at it i just don't think that helps the climate cause totally if anything they show us uh, actually the opposite the image of huge in a quality and uh, indifference between these two sectors of the global population. Can you try to defend Davos? Do no, we need I'm, it for something? Not, no, no I, don't, I don't think it's, I don't <laughs> no. think it's needed. <laughs> what about the best summits you can remember? Uh, well, the, I, I do remember the World uh, Social Forum in Porto Alegre. That used to be very jolly. Now, also the, the Amazon Synod, the recent Amazon Synod in Peru with the presence of uh, uh, Pope uh, Francis. That was very interesting because they were, they're, they're, they're different. They're local. They're playing to local issues uh, and they're not trying to uh, do uh, uh, theater politics. Mm. One as well, interesting, Chogham, which is the Commonwealth Summit that happens, I think, every every other year. It's The last one was quite interesting because there was a, a a move to try and secure Prince Charles as the head of, of the Commonwealth uh, because there wasn't really a constitution which said that he would become the head so someone else could have become but it would have been slightly strange but the Queen did manage to flex a bit of muscle to make sure that Charles to make sure you know that's a part of making sure that he succeeds her on the throne that the monarchy continues in, in the royal family's minds was to make sure that Charles became the head of the Commonwealth as well so that was a quite an interesting one to watch the dynamics of that. Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Vincent McAvinney there will be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monaco's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Marcus. Donald Trump has called his French counterpart Emmanuel Macron nasty for suggesting that the NATO alliance was brain dead. He also said he could see France breaking off from NATO, but did not explain why. The US president is currently in London for a summit to mark the bloc's 70th birthday. German media reports that the country's finance minister, Olaf Scholz, will continue in the post despite losing a bid to lead his Social Democratic Party. Scholz was defeated by candidates from the left of the SPD, which has led to fears that the coalition with Angela Merkel's conservatives could collapse. And Denmark's transport ministry is joining the battery-powered locomotive revolution with plans to trial new trains on two rail lines in 2020. The batteries will allow electric trains to operate on older rails with no overhead electric wires. For more on this story, head to monocle.com and sign up to our daily email bulletin. That's what's making news. Back to you, Marcus. 
Thanks, Ben. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi here with Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Vincent McAvini. Let's continue now with a look at Malta. The country's embattled Prime Minister Joseph Muscat resigned on Sunday in the wake of the murder of investigative journalist Daphne Caruana Galicia. The assassination drew attention to endemic corruption at the highest level and accusations that Malta had become a mafia state. Oscar, Latin American countries are obviously your expertise and there is a fair bit of corruption there. So what has happened in Malta? How familiar does that look to you? Well, not only Latin America in general, I am Colombian, so I happen to uh, to know and have experienced very well what that does. Now, precisely, that experience makes me very suspicious of the continuous usage of uh, such moralizing language as corruption, because uh, it, it easily confuses things. This is not about uh, uh, some people lacking ethical uh, codes. The kind of corruption that we're witnessing here, very much as, uh, uh, as, is, as it is the case in Latin America has to do with big businesses doing what they do. And I do include here, in the case of Latin America, drug trafficking uh, businesses or in the Maltese case, uh, the mafia. These are huge multinational businesses, multinational vampires, to quote uh, the Argentinian writer Julio Cortázar. What do they do? They defend their interests. How? With money with buying everything, consciousness and so on and so forth. So we shouldn't confuse this with, uh, oh, there is a lack of, uh, uh, you know, moral abilities and or ethical uh, abstract uh, uh, rules. Adding that will not change the fact that what we're witnessing here is precisely, uh, you know, global economics uh, at play. If we really want to uh, uh, criticize so-called corruption, we need to look very carefully into the motivations, into what are the multinational companies that are paying these huge bribes. And I do include uh, organized crime. Multinationals and and these international companies you mentioned over there, how do you how do you keep them in control? What what, what do intergovernmental organizations like the EU exist, if not in part to try to prevent something like this happening? What you mentioned has happened in Latin America or in Malta. You're absolutely right, Marcus. And unfortunately, the answer to your question is we haven't seen much. If you look, you know, I teach international law. If you look at uh, what the UN has uh, uh, done in uh, uh, respect of uh, multinational companies, well, we're still at the stage of, uh, you know, voluntary compliance with very abstract uh, codes of practice. And that means nothing in, in, in the end. So so much more has to be done. We must rein in uh, the uh, ability of these uh, big companies uh, to, uh, uh, you know, dispense with the laws of uh, most countries. How? Well, actually, Macron here may have something uh, to to teach us. These kinds of taxes to digital corporations and so on and so forth. That's the way to reining in on them. Vincent, what do you think? What kind of lessons should be learned from Malta, for example? I, th- I think I'd approach it in two ways. One is the kind of death of institutions globally that just automatically earn respect. I think the media, for one, uh, is you know is is hounded around the world. It's criticised. Yes, it makes things does things wrong, but there are also nefarious actors who attack it. And I think in smaller countries where you don't have strong and robust media, particularly a public uh, you know broadcaster, um, then these kind of things can go unreported. It's very hard in the global media world for 
local news sites to compete and have the money to do real investigations into these complex things and to have the legal protection if a big giant multinational comes at them. So that is one thing. You've also got the decline in, in just the people's trust in institutions. You know, you think about the how poorly, you know, the Catholic Church has, has been handling things over the past couple of decades. That kind of trust generally in institutions collapses. People raising their hands and saying, well, what, what can we do? Who do you trust with this kind of thing? And the same with politicians. The second thing I would say is, as someone who grew up on an island... Island economies are very strange and unique. You have a strange example here where this is one that is an EU member state. But island economies, they don't have natural resources. They're increasingly under threat from climate change. Their main industries used to be, you know, small town farming and tourism. That has died away. And uh, what you get is uh, offshore finance centres. And that is, you know... Basically, you know, the Channel Islands, the BVI, Caribbean, even you can class Luxembourg as part of this, Mauritius, these islands... You know, they create these offshore legal and finance centers uh, trying to get outside the scope of international organizations in order to to process this money. And some of them, you know, I grew up in Jersey, they do take steps to try and protect against money laundering. They have a financial services bureau. Others don't. And, you know, these islands can kind of become, once these companies kind of present to island governments this idea that, okay, well, you can create these law firms that create these vehicles and foundations and trusts and we can channel all this through. You know, it creates employment in places where there isn't much around. And I think that can happen quite quickly in the modern world with the way that technology moves around. Oscar, do you think we can learn some encouraging lessons from somewhere? Are there countries or places where they have managed to tackle these kind of issues, at least somewhat? Well, I mean, we're talking about islands, and that was a very, very uh, good point and very well put. You just reminded me that uh, Britain is an island, and uh, we should be wary of uh, uh, that tendency. Uh, It is the case throughout Latin America, not just islands. I mean, you look at Panama City, for instance, and you see exactly the same phenomenon. So there, this is a structural economic issue, uh, and and we haven't found uh, a way to tackle it, not yet, of course, what is required is multinational, you know, plurinational action. But uh, as you pointed out before, Marcus, uh, the uh, alliances that exist, which exist precisely for that purpose, have not done their job very well. Having said that, withdrawing from those alliances just increases that risk. And I think that's something uh, uh, that people here have really not uh, thought about. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, as a, a Latin American, as someone who, you know, hails from the Caribbean, and in particular, uh, to see what happens there and how these, how quickly the, they, these islands descend into uh, money laundering and tax evasion. Uh, I think that's the lesson. It's a cautionary tale for us all. And finally, here in the UK, Hugh Grant has announced that he will begin campaigning for people to vote tactically to prevent a conservative majority and to stop a Brexit. Grant says his dream would be for the UK general election to bring another hung parliament with MPs in charge. Well, Vincent, you've been obviously following British politics carefully. Do you think this is going to change the dynamics of the general election? Hugh Grant joining in. Do you know what? I've interviewed Hugh Grant before because he was very involved back in the hacking scandal a decade ago. And people said he had an axe to grind because obviously what happened in the 90s with a certain uh, prostitute in in Hollywood and that he was wanting to have a go. But he has stayed politically engaged on that issue and he has become more politically engaged. And I think there has been a bit of a, you know, Hugh Grant you know, a sort of resurgence the past couple of years. He's, he started to do good films. He did a very English scandal. Um, you know, he does, you know, he's an Oxford graduate. He's a smart enough guy. You know, everyone 
will remember him playing a prime minister in Love Actually, who, you know, won a Christmas election, it mm-hmm. has to be said. But I think, you know, Hugh Grant going around on the doorstep is nice. The Lib Dems needed some kind of boost. He's also working with some Labour candidates. He's working basically with Remain candidates because he really doesn't like Boris Johnson and doesn't trust him. Uh, and I think it's a very tricky thing, you know, celebrity endorsements, because... People that work in political parties tell you that, uh, you know, they can be great, but they can also kind of, they don't hold as much weight as they once did. And you don't want the wrong kind of person coming out for you. But I think in terms of the Liberal Democrats, you know, they need all the help they can get because Joe Swinson the Liberal Democrat leader, has really not had a good election. All of the polling suggests that the more the public see her, the less they like her. And she has soaked up all of the poison because she's the only person left uh, as a leader who was in the coalition government. She was a minister in that. She's taken all the blame from Nick Clegg, from David Cameron, for austerity, for tuition fees, for all of those things that were done. And she's really not going to come out this election well. I mean, there's talk that she could lose her own seat in Scotland to the SNP. Uh, and I just, I, even if she stays in her seat, I don't know if she can stay leader of that party beyond Christmas. Oscar, how do we feel about cultural figures participating in, in politics? How would you react if Hugh Grant came to knock your door? Uh, well, let me let me let me before make a distinction between uh, uh, those artists whose uh, artistic practices do resonate with their politics. People like uh, Roger Waters or Stormzy, who actually intervened in the election, and uh, his intervention is clearly listened and uh, uh, followed by uh, an, a considerable sector of uh, the electorate. That though, that kind of art is important because it defines itself in terms precisely of its belonging, of its class provenance, and it uh, uh, gives us a visualization of society that we require, particularly in an age in which uh, uh, media uh, can be uh, confused and or confusing. So that is important. And uh, uh, as, as uh, we heard before, uh, we have Hugh Grant campaigning uh, tactically. I do not think he will make a, a huge difference. I also agree that uh, the Lib Dems need <laughs> all the help they can, they can get. But uh, uh, to finish the point, uh, uh, well, what is important here is to uh, uh, remember that the function of art when it comes to politics is to uh, give us an image of how society can be better and to, make, to help us make better sense of society as it is. There is one area, though, where this is important. And Labour, uh, some Labour outriders on Twitter today have been making much of uh, Dua Lipa, the popular singer, announced uh, encouraging people to go and vote. And she herself said that she was going to vote Labour. And the one thing that did make a huge difference last year in US elections in 2018 was actually Taylor Swift. She'd come under a lot of fire for mm. not making her political views known. In the 2016 election, she tweeted and Instagrammed on the day that she was going to vote, but she'd never shown public favor to any of the candidates. And there was speculation, and she was kind of being co-opted as a bit of a kind of, you know, because she's blonde and blue-eyed, the far right were kind of co-opting her image as like, oh, she actually supports Republicans, she's a Republican girl. And she it became so confusing for her that she realized that this had started to take hold. And so she went 180 the other way. She went crazy in the 2018 elections on youth turnout. She sparked a massive surge in people signing up to register to vote. Uh, she backed candidates in Tennessee. She put money into Democratic candidates. And that it it's it's an interesting one with that in that you can do it all that there are celebrities who do political stuff all the time and they kind of lose their cachet. Mm-hmm. But when someone huge like that holds back, holds back and then uses their power at the right time, it can, you know, really help things.
Vincent McAvinny and Oscar Guardiola Rivera, thank you very much. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about quirky Christmas traditions. You are listening to Monaco's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi. Finally today, our ever-merry affairs editor Christopher Chermak follows in the footsteps of Father Christmas with this whirlwind look at the world this festive season. When I moved to Germany seven years ago, it didn't take long for somebody to mention the television comedy Dinner for One. You must watch it, they would say, but be sure to wait until New Year's Eve. So it's a German program, I'd ask? No, it's in English, comes the response. Don't they watch it in the US or the UK? As the comedy, really an extended sketch, begins, a German announcer appears to explain that you will see a play about an old lady, Miss Sophie, and her butler, James. Verehrtes Publikum, meine Damen und Herren, wir befinden uns hier auf dem Landsitz von Miss Sophie. Every year he throws her a birthday party where he plays all four guests, long-perished friends of the 90-year-old hostess. James gets increasingly drunk as he shares several toasts in his multiple characters and eventually, suggestively, takes Miss Sophie to bed. Now here's the strange part. This sketch originally played in UK seaside towns in the 1950s and 60s, but it only became beloved in Germany after a producer invited the two UK actors to record it for a German TV show in 1963. It's since become a German New Year's tradition. Meanwhile, most people in the UK have still never heard of it. It only played on television here for the first time in 2018. As someone who's moved from country to country throughout my life, I enjoy stumbling across quirky traditions like dinner for one and eventually working them into my own. That's what integrating is all about, not replacing your own traditions but adding new ones to your repertoire. Other habits I picked up in Germany include a love of apple wine and grüne Soße, which is green sauce of the central Hesse region. One thing I didn't assimilate from my many years in Frankfurt was Handkäsmit Musik. You'll have to look that one up. Trust me, it's worth it. Now that I've moved to London, it's time to add some new ones. And I don't just mean the pounds that come from eating mince pies. So be sure to let me know your quirkiest. Is everybody here? Indeed they are, yes, yes. <laughs> They're all here for your anniversary, Miss Sophie, yes. All five places laid out. All laid out as usual. Uh, Sir Toby. Sir Toby, yes, he's sitting here this year, Miss Sophie. Admiral Von Schneider. Admiral Von Schneider is sitting here, Miss Sophie. That was Chris Jermak and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machilari and researched by Jolinko Fa and Tia Thomas-Alexander. Our studio managers were Steph Chung and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That is at 1800 in London, 10am in San Francisco. I am Marcus Hippi. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Bye.